Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas in social change take hold. My name is Terry Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Hey friends, I'd like to share a little story with you before we get into today's show. Above my daughter's bed sits a quote that reads, be brave. My husband and I are teaching our girls the power to use their voice, to stand up for what they believe in, to ask questions, and to challenge when something doesn't make sense. That last one is the hardest because there's a lot that doesn't make sense right now. But as I think about my role, how my husband and I are intentionally raising our girls and how I'm also intentionally raising my business. I work really hard to take the same advice I give my girls, to question, to challenge, and seek to understand. It's why I started Mission Forward as a series of conversations and now host this podcast, because a lot of time I don't know the answer, but I know a lot of people like you who do. As a mom, a business owner, a concerned citizen, My sense of urgency to seek truth and understanding has only grown. The conversation I bring you today is from two years ago, from the Mission Forward stage, but it might as well have been recorded last week. We bring you a conversation with Anand Giradadas, publisher of The Inc., author of Winners Take All, and a columnist for The New York Times. Our conversation is an enlightening one. It will challenge your views and likely leave you with even more questions to explore as we seek to understand why those in power can so easily talk about how to do more good, but aren't quite ready to face how to do less harm. Many millions of Americans on the left and right feel one thing in common, that the game is rigged against people like them. Perhaps this is why we hear constant condemnation of the system, for it is the system that people expect to turn fortuitous developments into societal progress. Instead, the system in America and around the world has been organized to siphon the gains from progress upward, such that the fortunes of the world's billionaires now grow at more than double the pace of everybody else's. And the top 10% of humanity has come to hold 90% of the planet's wealth. It is no wonder that the American voting public, like other publics around the world, has turned more resentful and suspicious in recent years, embracing populist movements on the left and right, bringing socialism and nationalism into the center of political life in a way that once seemed unthinkable, and succumbing to all manner of conspiracy theory and fake news. There is a spreading recognition on both sides of the ideological divide that the system is broken and has to change. Some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates and on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laudable and self-serving. They have tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. 
All around us, the winners in our highly inequitable status quo declare themselves partisans of change. They know the problem and they want to be part of the solution. Actually, they want to lead the search for solutions. They believe that their solutions deserve to be at the forefront of social change. They may join or support movements initiated by ordinary people looking to fix aspects of their society. More often, though, these elites start initiatives of their own, taking on social change as though it were just another stock in their portfolio or corporation to restructure. Because they are in charge of these attempts at social change, the attempts naturally reflect their biases. The initiatives mostly aren't democratic, nor do they reflect collective problem-solving or universal solutions. Rather, they favor the use of the private sector and its charitable spoils, the market way of looking at things, and the bypassing of government. They reflect a highly influential view that the winners of an unjust status quo and the tools and mentalities and values that help them win are the secret to redressing the injustices. Those at greatest risk of being resented in an age of inequality are thereby recast as our saviors from an age of inequality. Subtle, right? Subtle. Just, just yeah. a slight message. So there's a message that you talk about throughout this book. And the theme of the book is we're willing to talk about how we do more good, but never how we do less harm. And I want you to talk about why you felt the need to write this book and why you felt that was such an important message to share right now. I'm a writer and I'm, I'm an observer of the world that I live in. One of the things that I observed that started to get on my nerves was being in all these spaces where rich and powerful people were talking about how they are essentially activists. They're, they're here to change the world. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, who's literally ruining America, like now, he's in a meeting now ruining America, also speaks more about changing the world than like anybody in America. Every Wall Street bank that knocked millions of Americans on their butt in the financial crisis, many of whom have never recovered, all of those banks have a program to like help 10,000 women or revitalize urban areas or send three minority kids to college. Too bad they like help three million minorities lose their homes. Every foundation that is engaged in good, laudable work in communities, but is completely silent about how that money was made, often by paying people as little as possible, mm -hmm. doing tax avoidance as aggressively as possible. I don't know if they serve the sandwich here, but there's a sandwich called the Double Dutch with an Irish sandwich, which is a tax avoidance maneuver that all these big companies use. And they go around, you know, helping some people doing this thing. It's like, well, where'd you... Where's that money? Because that money, that people like to make it seem like it's really complicated, but, but that money that's being given away, those billions that are Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg getting rid of all the diseases, even though he is a disease, um, all those people, that money is literally money that wasn't paid to workers, was not spent cleaning up Facebook, was not spent on compliance at banks, was not spent on taxes. That is money that could have been spent making sure problems didn't happen. And then that money somehow gets reinvented as the solution. And so I am against the idea of arsonists rebranding themselves as firefighters. I'm against 
the idea that the people who burned down the American opportunity structure should not just get involved in fixing it, because that may be okay, but should lead the fix, should be in charge of fixing it. Today, I mean, these people, they, I mean, they, they, these people do this faster than I can tweet about it. Paul Tudor Jones today, this hedge fund billionaire, is one of these people who's invented the slash and burn economic model that has led to some of the results that we all talked about in terms of inequality. Paul Tudor Jones now says, you know, millennials don't believe in capitalism anymore. So terrible, so terrible. We have to change capitalism. It's like, who's we, Paul? You're not like, just, just Paul, just step, please take your hands off the capitalism wheel. Um, you know, I started to wonder how it is that we have all these rich people running around talking about changing the world, and yet America's as unequal as it's been in 100 years, as angry as it's been in a long time. Democracy itself seems under siege. Clearly, all these activities by rich people, you know, they're going into this side of the machine, but progress is not coming out on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, so I became interested in what's going on in that machine, and I decided to kind of investigate it over the course of a few years. You have an interesting um, theory, and you just started touching on it, which is we, um, and maybe I'm not going to say this right, but we write off the role of government too fast, right? So talk a little bit about that today. Like many history lesson that I would give on that, which many of you know, is since the 1970s, this, there has been a war on government in this country. And it was a very organized war, actually. There was a thing called the Powell Memo that some of you may remember, where basically it was the 1970s, a very different time than now, it was pre-Reagan, and there was this feeling in the business world that they were about to lose like power in a very big way. You have to remember, the 1970s is the end of the FDR era, right? American history has these like long eras. We're living, I think, in the Reagan era still, right? Which is a 40, we're now in you know, the 40th year of that era, um, approaching the 40th year of that era. But if you were living in the 70s, you were living in FDR's era, right? Whether you're Republican or Democrat, that was the... And so even like Richard Nixon created the EPA. Mm -hmm. Because what it meant to create a, be a Republican in a Democratic era was you were to the right of Democrats, but you could still create an EPA. Communism was still a real thing in the world. The Soviet Union didn't show signs of disappearing. And there was this feeling that American capitalism was besieged. You got these crazy kids on campuses... And so Lewis Powell, was before he got in the Supreme Court, was this lawyer for Chamber of Commerce interests. And he wrote this memo saying, we're besieged. We have to learn to take power. We can't just be businesses buying for a dollar and selling for two. We got to seize power. And they did. Boy, did they seize power. Hmm. They pulled off an incredibly successful political revolution. And, you know, they the Republican Party, they made an alliance with the evangelicals, they you know, then this story continues through dark money, the Koch brother. I mean, if you are under 40, you, you have lived your entire life in the era that they created under the assumptions that they created. So they believe the government should be as small as possible. Taxes should be as low as possible, which is how you starve government. Regulation should be as minimal as possible. And then as the complement to that view, what's going to happen is a bunch of social problems are going to fester because the government is not regulating people. And and companies are just profiteering wildly. And, and, and the government's not going to have the money to solve those problems because you're not taxing them as much. So then what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. All those people who made all that money not being regulated, not being taxed, are going to step up and say, oh my God, what, what a shame. All these um, social problems.
So sad. So sad. I, I have this money. Well, I can donate to them and I'll get a tax break and put my name on the building. And I will tell my friends I sent three minority kids to Yale and it'll be, it'll be great. And so that's the system we've ended up with. At the heart of a lot of this elite do-gooding now is a kind of hidden anti-government agenda that is not as obvious as the Reagan thing or the Koch brothers thing, but is implicitly anti-government. Mark Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg claims not to be anti-government. He votes for Democrats. But in his vision of the self-regulating company, where the world can basically do citizenship in private under on his platform, he's doing more to undermine democracy than the Koch brothers, you could argue. Right, right. And the Koch brothers actually... I'm not sure they fraudulently ever tipped an election. They influence people. Mark Zuckerberg may have literally fraudulently tipped an election. A lot of what passes for change now is this sly anti-government agenda of basically rich people wanting to decide what our schools are like, what healthcare is like, what the arts are like. We're starting to get to a place where the amount of money being given away philanthropically is approaching the amount of money being given away by the federal government in discretionary non-military spending. So we're creating this other brand. We work so hard, not very successfully, to do one person, one vote in democracy. But then we have this whole other branch of essentially public action where there's no one person, one vote at all, where like some one person who made money in software or whatever gets to like decide what our public schools should be like based on what coffee they had in the morning. Yeah. So we're going to pick on Zuckerberg a little bit more because there's another story you tell in the book about his decision to invest in the Newark school system and charter schools, right? A lot of philanthropists investing in charter schools, but how they are unwilling to look at the public school system. Talk about that. These rich people love education because they often have good education, so they think other people should have good education. But at the heart of my book is the idea that when rich people take over, take over change, they change change. They redefine change. They defang change. They promote the kinds of change that are congenial to them and, and don't hurt their interests. And they, uh, you know, they kind of marginalize the forms of change that would be more threatening. So on, on the issue of education, a very clear example. It is pretty obvious if you were an alien landing in America or just a foreigner landing in America, that we fund education in the most absurd way imaginable, which is according to mommy or daddy's home value. We decided at some point to do it by local property taxes to allow every jurisdiction to draw this little fence around. And we decided, you know who should get the best education? People with the nicest houses. Mm -hmm. That's literally, I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's our policy. And so if you were to say, I'm a rich person taking on education, fighting that would be actually making progress. You could, right. I mean, it's, it's tough work. It would take organizing. There's a, there's a bad Supreme Court decision from the early 70s that made that possible, but we could get that overturned. I mean, that's the kind of, they can overturn abortion, like, surely might as well try to overturn this thing that's actually worth overturning. But it would take work. It would take probably billions of dollars over years to win a fight like that. But one federal judge in America could actually render it unconstitutional, right? Mm -hmm. so you got to remember, in, in our system, <laughs> like, there's literally one judge somewhere who could actually declare it unconstitutional right. to, to, to fund public schools this way. But it might take years to farm the cases the same way the, you know, the gay rights movement. They farmed cases for years. It's a lot of work. Well, rich people generally don't attack education that way. Why? Because you know what happened if you won that case? Every nice neighborhood in America would lose its really special schools. And Marin and Westchester and Chevy Chase and Evanston and Silver Lake, they'd all lose 
their special schools and their schools would fall down to the average of everybody else's and and school in the south side of chicago and you know washington inner city would rise up to the level of the average which would be good but rich people have no interest in that kind of change that kind of real change so so what do they do instead charter schools mm -hmm. why not that charter schools are awful not that they're some are great some are not great but it's a way of making change that does not change the system that you're standing on top of. It's a way of cha making change that minimizes your world having to change, your arrangements having to change. And I think that pattern that I laid out in depth on that issue, you could apply that to any number of issues. You take the empowerment of women. There's a bunch of social policies that we know from other countries that do this better than us. We know what the policies are right. that help women go to work in higher numbers and play all their roles without getting super stressed out at the end of the week, right? We know what those are. Like maternity leave, childcare tax credit, like it's a, it's a boring list of stuff that's really obvious to anybody who's actually had kids and like tried to have a household. We don't want to do those things. Why? Because they cost a lot of money, right? All the places that do that have way higher tax rates on rich people than we do. Mm -hmm. This is big money. Yeah. It's worth it, but it's, but it's big money. So rich people don't, pursue that kind of change because that would mean no more double dutch with an irish sandwich no more tax avoidance no more carried interest loophole you'd have to really have a lot more money going to the government to do that so what do they propose instead lean in which is i think telling women to make sexism their problem raise your hand higher men are treating you badly raise your hand higher i mean the idea of lean in is not telling this like the society to lean in it's not telling the systems and structures to lean in it is literally telling women to physically lean in to being shot at. And so, again, that pattern you can just see on all these issues. On each of those issues, there's real change. You could imagine there's fake change. I believe that what has happened as these kind of private sector victors have turned themselves into saviors is that they have made a huge push to do as much fake change as possible mm. and do as little real change as possible. So is there any coming back from it? Yes. I think we saw it a little bit last week. I think the answer to this is a return, is, a, is changing where we go to change the world. You know, if you just think about the phrase change the world, it is more associated these days with the private sector than with political life. You just like search on Twitter or Facebook for change the world. It'll be like, I literally saw a thing the other day, like come to this amazing conference on cha women changing the world. It's like, oh, that's cool. I'll just look at the link. Every speaker was a CEO. There's a weird belief in our time that the people who change the world like, are CEOs. I'm not saying CEOs shouldn't exist, but they're just not the people changing the world. Mm -hmm. They're people trying to make more money than their cost base. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what they're trying to do. Everything else is marketing. We need to return to politics as the place we go to change the world. And you can't use Donald Trump as an excuse to not get involved. There's 90,000 government entities in the United States. 90,000. As of January, the Republicans, you know, will control the House. I mean, the, the, the Senate and the, and the White House. But Democrats have the House and a bunch of other institutions throughout this country. I mean, mm -hmm. people have made the point that all these liberals who are very passionate about criminal justice focus on Congress, but don't bother to get involved in their local DA races, don't know who their local judges are who are actually sentencing people. There are ways to make govern government better at every level of public life, to run for county executive jobs. Right. You know, and so we need to change. Young people need to stop going to Silicon Valley and consulting firms and banks. They need to run for office, get involved, rebuild civic life. 
Um, and, and for all of us, I think the next time you see a problem, I say to people, think of a solution that is public, democratic, institutional, and universal. Mm-hmm. Next time you see a problem, don't do what they have tried to train young people to do for the last many years, which is start a cupcake company that gives back. That is actually not how you change the world. Mm-hmm. Or start an app that just steals people's privacy and just says that it's making the world a better place. Like, that's not actually how you make the world different. Mm-hmm. Don't run Facebook and then use some of that money just to, to, to do lean-in circle. Like, none of that is changed. Don't do Goldman Sachs, put, knock people on their ass, and then 10,000 women program, right. which is a way smaller number of, of women than the women you hurt. Actually think about repairing our problems at the root, at the level of law and policy and government. Um, run for office, fight cases in court, Above all, build movements. Mm-hmm. A lot, the last thing I'll say on that is a lot of what happens in the digital age is we often feel involved when we're on our phones. We feel involved. We've liked something, we've retweeted something, we feel like citizens. All of that is a substitute for citizenship. It is not a gateway drug to citizenship, it's a substitute. It makes you feel like you've been a citizen when you actually are part of nothing and, and no one. And if you have not barbecued with someone, you're not in a movement with them. So here's the really challenging moment we're in. We spent a lot of time earlier today talking about the changing um, demographics of America. And as we think about the young population and the number of Latino, Latina, Latinx um, young people, that they have the power to change the world, right? The power of changing demographics in our country. But how do we tell them that this is something they should invest in as we hear that there is such a lack of trust that that's where anyone would want to put their time in a movement to support an improved civic society. The political sphere is not optional. And this is what makes it different. Like people have this like, well, vote with your feet thing. I mean, that's a market concept. Okay. That is a concept for like, if McDonald's burgers start tasting really rancid, just don't go there. And then they'll get the message and go to Burger King. That doesn't really work with civic life. Mm -hmm. That's a frame that we, like, government is like your family. Right. Okay. Like if you're, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of people in this room don't have like the optimal family. Okay, Thanksgiving's coming up. You're still probably going home to it, <laughs> right? And that's sort of what government's like. Mm-hmm. Like you don't eat alone at Thanksgiving in a restaurant because your family's imperfect. You like have dinner with your really screwed up family. And our government is totally screwed up right now. It's also one of the most astonishing creations in the history of the world mm-hmm. that still works really, really well 98% of the time, even when Orange Mussolini is president. Mm-hmm. It's true. I mean, we forget that. But like when you go out to eat in America, there's like basically zero chance you're going to get sick in a restaurant. That's an enormous civilizational achievement. It took like 150 years to make possible. That's the kind of thing where there's like no president we could have that would ever make that not true. Mm-hmm. If you just think about like contracts and contract law, it's this totally boring thing no one thinks about. But the fact that we have it and all these countries don't at, at that level of quality is what allows all of you to do what you do every day and your companies to function and your schools to function. Like that, that stuff, no matter how bad a president we have, it's, it, it's just there. Like the, the funny thing about government is when it solves a problem well, it goes into this bucket of like things we just forget to be grateful for ever after. Mm. But it, the whole thing requires tending. And I don't think you can say just because you don't trust it you can abandon it. I think when you, when you, when, when good people secede from the political sphere is, is precisely the moment when, you know, semi-literate strongmen, um, 
whose only saving grace is their incompetence, take over the void. Um, because the one thing that Donald Trump actually does believe that a lot of a lot of us fail to believe that it is actually through political life that you can make change. Mm -hmm. And the reality is a lot of us were like mm -hmm. overthinking you make change in Silicon Valley. Right. And he actually understood he who grabs political power is the change right. agent. Right. And so that's why, to me, it is so dangerous to abdicate mm -hmm. the form of change making. And, and this blue wave thing that happened is real, but not just because of my side one, but because of all the number of people who were convinced to switch their life midstream, to do something else. To, they were running a company. They're going to run for office. They were, they were you know, engaged in various kinds of private change, and they've come in to seek change. All the changes that have actually mattered in our history occurred, mm -hmm. which is in the sphere of political life. Right. I really hope you enjoyed today's show. I know I did love going back in time and listening to it again as if it was just today that we had that conversation. You know, we're still a new podcast over here at Mission Forward. And while we know that not all podcast applications and services accept reviews, if yours does, I would deeply appreciate your five-star review and comments. Most important, if these messages resonate with you, please share the show with others and spread the word as we work together to move our mission forward. 